Hey, you kids, hush up. Can't you hear Marvin's own? Hello and welcome to Say It Loud. My name is Marvin Franklin. Today we are so fortunate to have this national presenter as a guest. Her name is Dr. Afia Mbilishaka. I had the pleasure of hearing her most recent presentations uh, as uh, one of the presenters at the ABIN, which is the A Black Education Network virtual conference a few weeks ago. The three-day con three conference was uplifting and encouraging. It was good to have people in the same space with similar ideas, confidence, and love of self. Dr. Afia's presentation gave me a lot to think about, and one of the first things was that we as a people have been more than brainwashed about our uniqueness. Our wide variety of skin tones, the fullness of our lips, body shapes, and hair are all a part of our identity. We should be proud of the skin that we are in but all too often we are not. Sometimes we can be our own worst enemy. In the presentation, she took us all on this historical journey, which included various hairstyles and our uniqueness. She incorporated visions of visits to the barbershop and the hair salon and how this was more than a task, it is a ritual. One of the most intriguing statements made by the doctor was about how we could really make a difference by making a hair ritual of people coming out of being incarcerated. How powerful could that be? Today, she's going to talk with us a little bit about the Crown Act, which is led by the Crown Coalition, founded by Dove, National Urban League, Color of Change, and Western Center of Law and Poverty. Dr. Afia Mbilishaka is a therapist, professor, research scientist, and hairstylist. She is the owner of the Mayotte Psychological Services, a private practice in Washington, D.C., focused on promoting balance and restoring order to the lives of her clients. She is an assistant professor of psychology at the University of the District of Columbia that focuses on understanding and using traditional African culture, cultural rituals for contemporary holistic mental health practices. She is a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania. She studied the psychological significance of race within lives and earned a PhD in clinical psychology from Howard University at the age of 26. Dr. Mbilishaka innovated the practice and research of psychotherapy, where she uses hair as an entry point for mental health services in beauty salons and barbershops, as well as through social media. She is the principal investigator of the psychotherapy research lab and has been a research advisor to over 30 students. She has now gone international, leading the cultural and mental health focused trip to Cuba and to various African countries. She is the former Association of Black Psychologists, D.C. Chapter President. Dr. Fia is a natural hairstylist, 
at Natural Hair Studio in Silver Spring, Maryland, where she loves creating art with locks, twists, and afros. That was a mouthful. How are you, Doc? How are you today? I am well. I'm just realizing I've done a lot in my life. So thank you for affirming me and giving me such a great introduction. So I was just really, really amazed at everything, how you put things together in perspective, even taking me to a different point uh, at the conference a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I am uh, follically, follically challenged. I don't have much <laughs> hair. But um, over the last few years, you know, there was a, a wrestler. I, I'm a big sports fan. And the wrestler, uh, I believe he was in New Jersey, uh, had to cut his locks off to participate. And I really felt some type of way about that. And I, I felt like that was not a, an unfair advantage. And so as I heard you speak, I felt like it was really important for my audience to hear uh, some of your work. And um, we talked about the Crown Act a little bit uh, at the conference. And I just would like for you to just share a little bit about, a little bit more than the bio, but a little bit more about what you're doing right now as it relates to, to the Crown Act. All right. Um, so there's a lot of work being done on the Crown Act. It's been a little bit slowed and delayed due to, you know, the global health pandemic and all the racial um, unrest. But part of what I was doing was giving the psychological basis for the consequences of hair discrimination. And so um, I have been studying hair and the psychology of hair for about the past 10 years. Um, I was trained primarily to understand race and racism, and I draw a connection between race and racism and hair discrimination, understanding that hair is a physical representation of race, right? So we have skin color, facial features, hair texture, and so recognizing that for a lot of black women in particular and men as well, that hair is used as a tool, it's almost weaponized against black people in terms of access to educational opportunities or employment or other institutional concerns. Whether it was the military a few years ago where they had certain rules and regulations around how black people could wear their hair. And so my role has really been to collect data and draw conclusions and develop theories related to hair discrimination. And so I've been contacted by um, national um, and um, state level legislators to support their argument that hair discrimination is harming black people. Um, and so my job has been to go to New Jersey, to Wisconsin, um, and even where I live in the state of Maryland to testify before the um, state legislators, usually the state senates, um, in support of the Crown Act. So, so from those three places that you testified, how many of those places have passed the bill? So the New Jersey passed the bill in 2000, December of 2019, and Maryland passed it, I think, in maybe in March. But Wisconsin has not passed it yet. But there are seven states in total that have passed the Crown Act. So we have 43 more to go. And California um, was first, right? Yeah, so California okay. was the first state on July 3rd of 2019 to sign um, the bill, followed by New York um, and then followed by New Jersey. So um, there's still a lot of work to be done. And it's just a pre pretty much a new bill, even though 
um, it's based on the 1964 um, Civil Rights Act that that in that that law it says you know black people cannot be discriminated against because of race. But there was sort of a little loophole um, where there was a disconnection between race and hair. And so now we're drawing that connection. And it seems like most places are um, seeing that that it's very important to value and understand race and hair go that race and hair go together. So <laughs> uh, yes, but you know what? So now that you're talking about it, I have seen a few Caucasian uh, people with dreads, uh, or, mm-hmm. or and I don't know if that's the correct term for them uh, for their hair. Will this bill be protective of them as well? Is it, or is it just people with uh, uh, who are black or brown? Okay, good question. It's about protective styles. So it's okay. centralizing protective styles. So before the Crown Act, um, you know, within the last year, if someone were to wear braids, locks, twists. Um, that it actually could be a basis for someone to be denied access to schools um, or even get fired from a job. And so um, what the Crown Act does is protect protective styles. So those styles of braids, twists, locks do fit with within the scope of the Crown Act. So before um, with the Civil Rights Act of 1964, it I think they make reference to being able to wear an afro, um, but if you braid it, twist it, lock it, it did not count. And you could be discriminated against for having those cultural styles. So if we're saying that locks and braids and twists are a cultural style, then I guess other cultures can wear them. But it's the the law explicitly references braids, references locks and twists um, as a basis to not um, be harmed because of that styling choice. So tell me, what was it like to testify? I mean, uh, what, um, were you nervous? What, what all yes. kinds of facts did you have to bring to the table? <laughs> yeah, so I had never been trained to to testify, and um, you know, in in our state senate, that's something with that was completely new to me. You know, I'm a clinical psychologist, and so that means I'm sitting in a room with one other person doing <laughs> therapy. Now to see this. I remember the, the first place was New Jersey. The room was huge. There were microphones and it was being recorded. Like it, my heart was racing so hard and anticipating having to go up to this pretty much a group of like 12 white men mm-hmm, <laughs> and mm-hmm. explain, explain hair texture for black people and explain um, racism and emotions that I felt very um, nervous, but I was prepared. I was very prepared because they told me I only would have three minutes to talk and they were, and they were cutting people off. So I wanted to be very prepared and they cut me off, but I kept <laughs> going. I noticed they cut me off and this is a funny note. They cut me off when I said the words white supremacy and they cut my mic. Wow. So, <laughs> That, that that memory will always stay with me. And I just kept talking, even though the mic was cut, I, I wanted to finish what I was saying. And then they get, they gave me another um, few seconds to conclude my, my statement. So yeah, that I was extremely nervous. And then when I testified next in Wisconsin, that was nerve wracking too, because that day in um, the Capitol building, Pence was giving a talk. 
Mm -hmm. So I think just like the Pence supporters and Trump supporters being there, and I had never been to the state of Wisconsin before, I was even a little nervous about my safety. Um, <laughs> everything they were very supportive. That group actually was was more um, talkative. They asked me a lot of questions. They even asked me about episodes of Blackish related to hair. So I really? felt like they were much more <laughs> engaged. And then for the Maryland um, testimony, I, I felt the most comfortable because now this was my third time doing it. I had you know sort of techniques to soothe myself to do this work and that's where I live. So I felt more invested um, in making sure that, that I got to articulate my research and beliefs about protecting black hair. So uh, it sounds absolutely amazing. I think I probably would have fainted. Uh, you know, those sound like some really, really challenging uh, obstacles uh, to speak about some things that I know that your audience may or may not necessarily uh, recognize as as a challenge, you know. So I'm sure when you mentioned white supremacy, uh, that made them feel differently about. Oh, okay. Well, we we're not um, discriminating about hair. It's it's something else. But uh, we all know that that's not the truth. So I did want you to talk a little bit about um, psychological consequences of hair dis discrimination. Okay. Yeah, so, so from what I've been studying, um, well, I use something called the Hair Health and Heritage Study to collect data about the psychological consequences of hair discrimination. And in the Hair Health and Heritage Survey, I have measures about depression um, of, and other mental health inventories. I have measures where participants actually get to tell hair stories. So they can tell experiences, maybe early experiences or negative experience or even positive experiences that they've had with hair. And so a lot of my data comes from people's storytelling in terms of these stories that are self-defining and last throughout their lives. And so my role has been to analyze these stories and come up with different concepts and frequencies for how often certain emotions come up. The most frequent emotions that come up for these stories about hair discrimination are shame and sadness. So sadness in terms of people really feeling hurt when someone criticizes them or treats them unfairly based on their hairstyle, texture, or length. And then shame in terms of not only are, are people feeling sad, but they feel bad about themselves, that something's wrong with them. And so shame is one of the harshest emotional experiences to have because shame silences. Mm -hmm. So it actually makes people not want to talk or process it or um, go deeper because it hurts a lot. And so, and shame is quieted, right? It's a very quiet emotion. And so I found a lot of black women had shame in school um, related to their hair where these black women reported experiences of their teachers shaming them saying get out of this class your hair is ugly teachers saying this mm -hmm. or other classmates you know making fun of them um so that this was a, a very common and shared experience to feel ashamed of th their whole being because of a hair related experience so so people who participate in this study were up to like, you know, in their mid-70s, recalling experiences from elementary school 
about how they got mistreated by a teacher or a classmate and that it stayed with them their whole life and they never wanted to wear their hair in a certain style again or how, you know, they hated themselves because of what was said. Hated themselves because of what was said by they about their hair. So even how internalized um, these hair experiences can be and shape people throughout their entire lives. So as you were talking in the presentation, uh, I could see the pride of uh, at the Avon uh, conference, uh, I could see the pride of how and remembering what I felt like coming out of the barbershop, remembering what I felt like going in the barbershop and talking with the with the men about all kinds of things and knowing the same thing about women going to uh, to the salon. And so as that ritual and, and now for you to talk about someone feeling shame for something that you should be proud of or how you feel it represents uh, your heritage, it represents your uniqueness, no matter what the hairstyle uh, may be uh, with the locks or, or whatever, instead of just straightening. And so I saw a couple of videos also uh, prepping for today and you know, I say excuse my ignorance to a, to a certain degree because, you know, you look at it and it's been what we've seen the majority of our time, right? Like you see, most women have, uh, well, black women are on TV, they have straight hair. So you're like, oh, okay, well, that's what it's uh, supposed to look like. And, and the amount of time that they talked about, like you just don't, I, I'm in a different place. I'm just saying that I... Uh, just to see someone say that they had to work hours and hours and hours to get their hair prepped and changed and damaged by the heat to pull out what it naturally does. And so we just don't celebrate our uniqueness nearly enough. I didn't mean to ramble, but I just it was just some things going on in my mind. I did want to ask this question. Did they have people testifying that actually were told to go home because of their hair or lost jobs? Yes. So they had people testify during the times that I was there. I remember one person um, had been a newscaster and had experienced discrimination related to her hair of being, um, you know, on TV, the, the feedback from her network and her show and even the negative remarks from even some of the viewers when she attempted to wear uh, natural protective hairstyles on camera because the, the harshness of being on TV is awful for black women because they're constantly having their hair pulled out um, because of the heat and the chemicals that are used between scenes. And so I've actually had a few celebrities contact me to say that they um, were asked to leave shows because it took so long. They said it was taking too long between the scenes for the hairstylists to change their hair and actually, you know, resulted in hair loss for these women. So th this is a, a big thing. Other um, students had testified, you know, related to policies at their schools. You'd be shocked to see that a lot of um, dress codes are anti-Black. Well, maybe not surprised, but <laughs> that right, a lot right. of the dress codes would actually explicitly say you cannot have braids. And so that's a huge thing to tell Black children and students that they can't have braids, you know, really goes against our cultural heritage and pride. So, so it's, yeah, other people t told their stories of, um, you know, corporate America and um, not being able to get promotions or things like that and citing their appearance 
of their hair as the reason why they could not get promoted. Um, and their hair has season. nothing to do with their performance. No. Exactly. Right. So, so it was a range of stories um, for the people who testified for the Crown Act. So I'm looking at your bio and, and it says this psychotherapy. Yes. Can you give me a little bit of a description of what, what all does that include? Okay. <laughs> all right. So psychotherapy is using hair as an entry point into mental health services. So it includes training barbers and hairstylists, basic counseling techniques. They're already doing it. They're already therapists, informal therapists and support systems for the community, not just black people, but the community in general. And so what my role has been is to train them using techniques that I've studied in school as a mental health professional and bring it to that hair care space. And so it also includes social media because sometimes people don't go to the barbershop or hair salon that they might watch YouTube videos or, you know, various beauty influencers for advice. And it's also training those people to promote wellness um, through their, their um beauty inspired beauty. Mm -hmm. um, social media mm -hmm. so that's been a piece of it too um but yeah, it's having group therapy in the hair salon and barbershop and just even having workshops in that space and recognizing that throughout african-american history um black hair salons and barbershops have really been spaces of community organizing whether martin luther king would speak at barbershops or even going to um, more of a pan-africanist view Marcus Garvey utilized barbershops and actually developed a lot of his debating skills and oratory skills from speaking at barbershops. Or even we know in like the movie Malcolm X, right? The barbershops were central for him developing his sense of consciousness. So it, it really studies the, the mental health and wellness aspects of hair care setting. So you mentioned in your, I'm going back to uh, the conference also but this i'm telling you doc was absolutely amazing uh there were a lot of great uh, speakers but uh you really set the world on fire uh you got wow. my <laughs> yes you got my you got my wheels turning and you while while you're talking about the therapy um one part you mentioned about people how powerful it would be if people who were incarcerated and they were getting out then they came out and we had this like sense of a ritual of of a, a changing of what was until from you know moving from the past to uh the present with some sort of ritual with the, the cutting of the hair or or doing something with the hair could you could you tell me a little bit more on how you came to that or did you read about something similar to that Okay, yeah, so it's interesting. I I am deeming myself as a hair historian. I need to add that to the bio too. And so I really have enjoyed studying the history of African hair rituals. So my father actually is um, a retired professor of African and African-American studies. And so I did grow up with lots of books around me related to black culture. And it's interesting, the most information that I've found about black hair comes from photography books. So for people who have gone and studied different ethnic groups um, that are maintaining African rituals, and I would look at those books and most of the rituals would include hair from birth through death, right? Or even preconception. Sometimes mm -hmm. it would include different doing different things with your hair, whether it was at a wedding to create fertility 
um, that the hair was usually involved. So what I started doing is looking at the images and reading the captions beneath that would explain what was happening in the image. And they, they would say, this pendant is put in the hair to attract spirituality. The hair needs to be covered for this. And so I was realizing that, of course, there are so many different rituals on the continent of Africa, but a lot of them um, can represent the power of hair because um, hair is easily manipulated, right? Mm -hmm. That maybe compared to our body parts or our facial features or our skin color, you can't change it as easily as you can change your hair. Mm -hmm. So if somebody wants a new look, they're going to change their hair. And so that is, it, it, I realized that hair was a language on the African continent and different parts of our identities could be expressed through hair. Our hair can show how old you are. Hair can show um, your religion, right? Hair can show how healthy you're eating. Hair can show all these, your wealth. And so I really um, have been studying that and recognize, well, it. It also communicates in the U.S. Hair can communicate experiences. And when we think about the experiences that Black people have in this country, how we need to heal from some of those experiences yes. utilizing our hair. So I studied the Maasai, for example, so that when they go into their warriorhood, they have to grow locks. And when they finish, they have to have a ritual around cutting the hair off. And it's this, you know, really caring for men in a public space, which we don't get to see, right? We see our bodies lynched. Right. in public in the U.S. Now to think about a ritual where we gather and bathe and take care of black men, I'm positive that that will have impacts for generations to come. So I, I, I definitely think that we can, you know, think about how rites of passage in different forms can connect to um, the hair, hair process. I, I absolutely love it. I hope we can get something like this, uh, started because uh, as you it, just as you were sp speaking just now it made me think about um, my mom so I did at one time have a little bit of hair and my mom on Sunday <laughs> that's right but um, on Sundays uh, right before school or whatever uh, the, the school week my mom would I would sit in between her lap and she would uh, comb my hair and put coconut oil and and part and and this was a a great time between mother and son that we didn't normally have outside of just this this time and it was something that I looked forward to I just she would talk to me and my mom was always a big stickler about any types of scars that I may have gotten I was a hundred percent boy and so she'd say you know how did you get this scratch and I'd say oh you know I fell out the tree you know that kind of thing but it was <clears throat> that bonding time so that ritual is bonding right it's uh, that rites of passage is a, a moment where we all get a chance to to talk with one another celebrate one another and lift up each other and so I, when you mentioned that I said oh that's I want that to be a part of what uh, what my audience hears uh, for sure. So I, I do want to change directions just a little bit, not much, but just a little bit. So I would I would like to know because most of my uh, listeners are educators. Okay. Do you have about three or five books that every uh, woman you think should read? And and then what about girls? Okay. 
All right. So 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 we're going there. Yeah. And I, I'm a full time professor. So it's even funny how I'm talking about therapy or talking about hair, but I'm actually full time an educator. Right? Yes. Um, and doing lectures. And that's actually where, where I exist and give reading assignments. So, <laughs> so we'll go in that direction. So if if I could have every black woman um, read books um, based on my preference. I wouldn't want to limit it to three to five, right, but right. if I had to, <laughs> if I had to, I think since I'm a hair person, I would go with Hair Story by um, Ayana Bird and Lori Tharps. So Hair Story, it, uh, the subtitle is Untangling the Roots of Black Hair in America. Okay. So this is one of my favorite books that I've ever read because basically they tell time through hair and especially black women's hair. So I often take the approach of understanding hair story in terms of the history of hair, but mm. how much it's rooted, I keep making all these hair puns, how much it's rooted in <laughs> um, the black female experience. And we can actually see how um, the more rituals or access to education or these different things are connected to hair. So I would, I would definitely recommend the book Hair Story. It can speak to how we fell out of love with our hair and how we can fall back in love with it. Mm -hmm. So that that's probably my top choice coming from someone who is a hairstylist. Yes. And a psychologist. I really like the book hair story. Mm -hmm. um, another book that I would recommend is a food book. Um, I think, you know, sometimes we have uh, what some people will call nutricide um, in terms of that we're actually killing ourselves through our food. Um, that's comes from Dr. Africa. Um, who recently passed away, but I would recommend the book um, By Any Greens Necessary. Okay. So this book, By Any Greens Necessary, is um, by, let me, what's her name? Tracy, uh, you can look it up, her name's mm -hmm. Tracy, you know, mm -hmm. By Any Greens Necessary. And basically this book highlights um, how critical it is that Black women stay informed about um, nutrition and eating habits and that this is really the basis of our bodies. Um, and, and hair health, right? <laughs> yeah, hair health, rec yeah, recognizing to what degree we are oppressed through our eating habits mm -hmm. um, and energy levels. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that book is really good in recognizing the chemicals in foods that impact our fertility to, you know, um, chemicals that could cause cancer. Um, so I think that's a really good book and it gives recipes. It breaks down what foods can help with what health concern. So I recommend that by any, and obviously it's a, a politically charged book considering by any greens necessary. Love it. Um, <laughs> and then, hmm, oh gosh, this is hard. Um, what other book would I, I'll go with, Okay, so I did history, I did health, um, maybe, I'll go with this. This is not by a black author or mm -hmm. a black woman author, but I go with the book, The Body Keeps the Score. Okay. Um, so this is actually a book by a mental health professional, a white male me mental health professional. But in this book, he really identifies how um, we process trauma. Mm -hmm. And I'll make an argument, people can agree or disagree with me, but black women in the United States have a lot of trauma. I'll say that. So even in my private practice that 
it's not at the point of me asking if my clients have had it, it's when did it happen, mm-hmm. right? In terms of recognizing physical, um, sexual, or emotional in nature that trauma is um, part of the system for black women. So although we might not um, be incarcerated at the same rates or other things that we're definitely experiencing um, traumas by family, by our friendship circles, romantic relationships. And I think that book highlights how trauma develops our brain and our worldview and techniques and strategies to process the trauma through different um, mindfulness techniques, yoga, and um, therapy too, right? So it really even discusses how to utilize talk therapy to be able to process trauma. So I'll, I'll go with those three um, for Black women. So okay. their story by any greens necessary and the body keeps the score. Okay. So you mentioned a couple things in the last with the last book, The Body Keeps the Score. And so mm-hmm. the first thing that came to my mind is hurt people hurt people. And so it's, I, I know for a fact, too, that black men and black women have a lot of trauma. And we are, uh, without any type of therapy, we're hurting each other. And, and we've really got to work in a different space to um, provide a positive outcome for the both of us. Um, mm-hmm. so, so what about girls? You got anything for the girls? Okay. I, I really love autobiography. Mm-hmm. I think autobiographies are great for girls because it helps them to anticipate potential challenges that they'll have in their lives and how that person got through it. Because any person you idealize or idolize has gone through some stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think sometimes we we think people don't have problems because they're successful. And so I recommend autobiographies then by Black women. Um So specifically, I think one of my favorite autobiographies that I would recommend for black girls or even teenagers would be um, Asada. So her autobiography, I think, is very thorough in breaking down um, systems of oppression, but also it's very intimate and reflective. She tells she has poems in there, tells stories about growing up and farming to being in New York City. She even describes how she um, made it through an attempted sexual assault and just different things like that on how she garnered support and had different shifts in her identity. And then two, I identify Asada as being a Maroon. So, you know, a Maroon was an enslaved African who was able to escape from the plantation to live free, whether it was in the mountains or in the woods that she was able, you know, Maroons are able to maintain their, their, their freedom and sovereignty. And I do identify Asada Shakur as a modern day maroon that she was able to escape systems of oppression in the United States to live free someplace else. You know, she's still on the FBI's most wanted list because mm-hmm. of what her her story does to people. And so I, I reflect back in reading that book. I only read it after I had a PhD, but it really was inspirational for me to constantly be on the path to seeking freedom for myself. All right, so now I'm getting ready to put you in a hard spot. This is <laughs> this is this is the money ball question because okay. you mentioned uh, Asada and you did not mention Madam C.J. Walker. Oh, and yeah. you are a yeah. hair person, hair so <laughs> so tell me 
tell me why or is there uh, an author of something that she's done that uh, you don't feel is good or, or what? Why didn't you mention her? Well, Madam C.J. Walker didn't write a book herself. Her her granddaughter, great-granddaughter wrote a book um, on her own grounds. Is that what it's called? I'm forgetting the full title. Mm -hmm. But I think that book is lovely. I think Madam C.J. Walker's story of um, becoming the first black female millionaire is very powerful in how she disrupted systems um, of economic um, oppression. Now, I think um, her story is often mistold. For example, Netflix did a, an awful job. I'll say it publicly. Awful job? Oh, oh, it was awful. Okay, I thought I heard you. This is a Zoom call. I wasn't sure. <laughs> awful, awful. Netflix, I, I, I was excited because I love Madam C.J. Walker's story about how, you know, she was the first person in her family to be born free. Both of her parents were enslaved. And by the age of six, um, she was actually an orphan. Um, both of her parents had died. And so she went to the Midwest to live with her sister. And while she was there, she got married and um, had a child. But by the age of 17, she actually was a widow. Her husband was murdered um, in a race riot. Um, and so at 17, being a, a widow and having a child, she was extremely stressed. And so her hair started to fall out, right? And mm. so she was doing work as a domestic um, and started trying to make new money. And so she says, according to her you know, biography, that one day she had a dream. And in her dream, an African man came to her and told her, if you want to grow your hair back, you have to get these very special plants and herbs from Africa. And so when she woke up, she um, ordered them and it came a few weeks later and she mixed together different recipes in her kitchen and applied it to her hair and it worked. It grew her hair back. And considering so many other black women were experiencing hair loss at the time too, the current research as of 2018 says that 47% of black women experience hair loss mm -hmm. at some point in their lifetime. And so thinking about the conditions, especially back then of you know poor nutrition, stress, um, all these different factors that could, you know, hormonal levels mm -hmm. that could impact hair loss, that she shared it with her friends and family and it started growing their hair back too. And so she made a business out of it. She did study under um, Annie Malone um, and got some of her techniques and strategies from, from her, but a big part of what Madam C.J. Walker did in her life story was to empower other Black women. They say at the time of her death in the early 1900s that she employed over 100,000 mm. other Black women, right? Even Oprah and Michelle Obama don't do that. Right. And so she really saw that hair could be a means of economic empowerment for Black women. So when I watched the Netflix uh, episode, I didn't see Madam C.J. Walker go to Africa. So are you saying that that's one of the first things? She didn't go to Africa. She said she had a dream. She had a dream. That an African man came to her and okay. told her how to grow hair. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. I don't remember the dream either. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it was the dream was not in there. And I thought it was interesting because part of the agenda, I don't know if you saw this in there, was they kept saying she stole that's the what, recipe from the made-up That's what I was getting ready to say, yeah. So the person she stole from didn't even exist. 
So that was that. I'm like, our history is so much richer mm. than what is in the media. Mm-hmm. And so I just thought that was a terrible move to create this light skin versus dark skin narrative that did not exist. Um, and that Annie Malone, who the character was based on, was a, a phil- philanthropist. She gave most of her money away. The reason she wasn't the mm. first black female millionaire is because she gave all of her money away mm-hmm. to charities and especially orphanages. So in the city of St. Louis, to this day, they have parades called the Annie Malone Parade mm. because of all the things that she did for that city and especially the black people in that city. There are orphanages still with her name on it. So that's that, why I'm like, why did they create such a, a sinister and evil character? That would have been a prime uh, opportunity to lift up both of the people at the same, and as opposed to creating this divisiveness. But it sounds like what what is going on in, in America today. It's always one versus the other. So, okay. Exactly. Oh, wow. Exactly. All right, so I've got one more question for you. So I asked about the <laughs> I asked about the women. I know you're gonna be like, oh my goodness, he asked a lot about books, but um, what <laughs> book should every black man read and know about black women? Mm-hmm. That's a good question. Um, the black women are so diverse that I'm like, how, how, what what book would, would guide us yeah. or guide them to really understanding our complexity? Mm-hmm. I think the book that I would go by, I'll go with this. I'll go with the book, The Spirit of Intimacy by Sabone Fusome. Okay. The Spirit of Intimacy, I think, is a really great book because it's short to the point and more so makes people recognize what they need to work on for themselves to be able to relate to anybody. Mm-hmm. So in this book, it really takes a traditional um, African cultural approach to sitting with your own emotions, to how to be curious about other people and recognizing how to satisfy other people's needs as well as your own self needs. So I, I'll go with that. Sabonfu Fusome's The Spirit of, of Intimacy to recognize that you cannot be in a relationship with anyone else, whether it's a friendship, a family dynamic or romantic. Um, you cannot be in a relationship with another, with a black woman without having greater understanding of yourself um, so that you can have a cohesion and collaborative connection um, with black women. So I'll go with that. That sounds like a home run to me. That, that sounds like a good, I'm going to make sure I run out and, and read that myself. It's very short. It's, I think, under 100 pages. Okay. As a newlywed, I'm going to definitely make sure I put that in the... Read it together. Yes. Sounds Mm -hmm. good. Sounds good. All right. So uh, one more thing before we we sign off. I want you... Do you have anything... Is there something with the Crown Act? Is there a website or anything? Is there a petition going on? Yes. Yes, there there is. So what, what I actually would recommend... Um, is going, just Googling the Crown Act um, first to even see information about what's being updated because things are changing all the time. That's how I have to find out about Mm -hmm. it, you know, in terms of what states have passed it, what states have not passed it. But uh, uh, one thing that you can do after you Google the Crown Act is that you should see a petition 
in support of the Crown Act. And once you see that petition in support of the Crown Act, you can sign it. <laughs> sign the <laughs> petition. Then you can send a letter or send an email to your state and federal legislators. So I know, for example, Cory Booker um, has been the person um, representing the Crown Act in the Senate um, and Ayanna Presley in um, the House of Representatives. And mind you, this is a side note, I like knew nothing about legislation before doing the Crown Act. So I'm like, okay, the bill turns into this and they have to get support and then, like this is, I passed all my social studies classes with <laughs> an interesting to, you know, witness and be in the Washington, D.C. area, too, and to see how the politics of it works. Okay, you said number one, sign the petition, right? Number yes. two, send a letter or email to your state representative, whether it is at the federal level or even national, right? Because each state has its own um, legislators and its own state senate. Um, that you can contact them. And they actually are pretty responsive um, because they have teams that respond to the emails and you know can communicate. And number three, um, I think just, just embracing your own hair, right? Can be a way to um, promote the Crown Act and share your stories, whether it's positive or negative ones um, about hair. So to, to pass the crown, as they say, um, so, so social media is very big. You can follow um, the Crown Campaign or the Crown Act. There are a few different um, social media hashtags that can be followed so that you're up to date on things. But yeah, that's that's one way to, to or a few ways. A few ways. Those are, those are all very good. I'm so glad. Again, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I truly appreciate it. Keep doing the great work you're doing. Uh, it definitely... Uh, your words definitely made me think a little bit differently about uh, a hair myself. My my own sons have crowns of their own, and uh, you know, so I've uh, been culturally conditioned to feel a certain type of way about what corporate America looks like, and and wanting them not to be discriminated against. Um, but your words made me feel like we've got to be proud of the skin that we're in. You know, we are unique like I said earlier, and in our uniqueness, they have tried to imitate us, but they can never duplicate us. They, uh, they uh, get their skin uh, toned, they uh, put collagen in their lips, and all of those things to look like us and then uh, talk about us because of those unique features. So uh, definitely food for thought. So thank you again, Dr. Afia Mbili Shaka, I truly appreciate it. Keep doing your great work, and I will see you soon. God bless. Right. Thank you so much. Thank you.